0: grapes huh
1: yeah they're uh like a third of them are ripe right now Uh in this very long fence along my backyard and i'm very excited and extremely concerned Mm -hmm. because like so here's one thing that as a new homeowner i need in my in my kitchen Right. right i need a cookbook where it's not just like hey fun with rhubarb like here's like 18 different types of like rhubarb muffins but like what i need is a book where it's like okay this is the stuff you do the first week you're excited about this harvest mm-hmm. that maybe you didn't even sign up for Like when you've got
0: all the good stuff the vegetables yeah the or whatever
1: you know or it's just like the peppers are finally coming in or yeah. something yeah. and then i want like a cookbook where it's like this is what to do with the rest of your stuff from your garden that you just can't stand <laughs> You know what I mean? Where it's like, like I planted one jalapeno plant this year, Uh and there are like twelve peppers just like sitting there that I don't know what to do with. And I've been using them like crazy, and now I have like this is my first summer in this house, and I just have this huge wall of grapevines where like I'm sharing them with our neighbor, but like that's still a lot of grapes. And it's like, what do you do with grapes, Eric? You don't like. Cook them into breads or pies or whatever. Yeah,
0: no grape cake.
1: Grape cake.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's the new thing. You
1: make jam or you make jelly, right? So like, I need somebody to be like, "Here's what you do with this metric shit ton of grapes that you didn't exactly ask for to begin with, Hmm. but here they are anyway."
0: Just like a dysfunctional idiot cookbook of like horrible (laughs) ingredients. Yeah, I need that too. We had a we had this. We were gifted a bok choy.
1: Oh no. That I
0: to be honest, I couldn't pick a bok choy out of a police lineup right now. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I don't know the I don't know what it tastes like. Someone gave us one and we put it in the ground and get this. It it's cabbagey. Pro- it promptly died.
1: Oh that's good. Yeah, so
0: now we've just got this dead bok choy. See and that bo- that'll make for a good yeah. stew.
1: Bok choy perhaps. is is one of those things that like you get in your CSA a lot when you are a <laughs> yeah. Minnesotan and you think it's a great idea to sign up for a CSA yeah. because community supported agriculture it's a wonderful thing yeah. but then you realize that we live in like the lamest growing <laughs> like area and so all yeah. you get is like kale yeah. and kohlrabi for 3 right. months and right. then you get a potato mm-hmm. and sometimes like a little basket of raspberries but that's it and it's just the saddest $300 you've ever spent
0: yeah yeah Man. Anyway, well, I figure at this point, perhaps we should take the opportunity to say, Welcome to this episode of Print Run Podcast. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Um, say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. I'm all everywhere today. If I realize you, I'm like stumbling it's over okay. Our It's okay.
1: Yeah. It's okay. I too am uh, adrift on the sea of confusion <laughs> with with my grapes ripening and yeah. all of that. So if you know what to do with grapes, it sounds let like me a know.
0: euphemism or something. It Oof. does. My grapes are ripening. <laughs> <laughs> That These are my no- grapes
1: of wrath.
0: That could mean any number of things. Um, but anyway, before we kind of get into what I think should be kind of a, a good, fun, interesting episode today, um, how about the basic rundown?
1: Yeah, so we are at the beginning of the month. Congratulations, we all made it to August. Now let's try not to melt between <sighs> now and the fall. Um, we have all sorts of fun episodes coming for you this month, including our query show, our first pages show, and due to a special listener request, a synopsis yes. show. So if you have any of those three things that you would like for us to critique, um, make sure that you're a Patreon subscriber and then send them to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of uh, fun, good episode topics today... <laughs> Uh, so we've
0: gotten really good at transitions.
1: Racism.
0: Oh yeah, good, perfect, <laughs> excellent. Uh,
1: I laugh, but it's no joking matter. So remember, um, when we talked a few weeks ago about WorldCon, the yeah. the World Science Fiction Convention, which I will be going to in a week or so, and I should really get my shit together. Um, but we talked about how a lot of the programming was, uh, perhaps discriminatory towards writers of color and Uh um and was not great well um romance saw that in the science fiction fantasy world and Mm -hmm. said hold my beer yeah just wait Mm -hmm. um and so we've talked a little bit before about the Rita's which are essentially the Oscars of romance publishing Mm -hmm. um and the Ritas just, you know, RWA just happened. The Romance Writers of America annual conference just happened, um, and all of the submissions and the nominees were were they got score? They got their scores back because apparently um, they do that in romance, um, and so a bunch of people got their scores back for the Rita Awards, and a bunch of them were super racist um so yeah man
0: it just feels like some of this stuff is so easily avoidable but it, is, like, i didn't yeah. even know you, i didn't even know you could be racist yeah. in like a score yeah man in
1: in scoring yeah. like how sexy a book yeah. is but i, I but, mean you think about it and yeah apparently um a lot of the judges erroneously categorized books that were submitted as um, not romance if they had you know characters of color or you know any sort of illness or oh, yeah. So it's this well. whole problem. and so obviously the people logged on. Yeah, they logged on. Um, and so now good news, the RWA is revising their their scoring practices for 2019 to help uh, eliminate biases unconscious or not um but one of the things that i've been very taken by as this conversation has progressed this week is that like this is just one of the things in a very very long line of bad things that the rwa has done to alienate um yeah authors of color. And so, like, most authors of color who write romance don't join the Romance Writers of America, particularly because, for example, and this isn't even, like, the worst thing, but, for example, um, in 2005, the RWA sent out a survey uh, to vote about whether romance should be redefined as being between one man and one woman. When was this? 2005. Wow. uh, They apologized for it 11 years later. Uh So, I mean, that's okay. But, like... You know, on one hand, it's really good to see them making strides. So they,
0: so yeah, they've made what's yeah. So describe to me the specific sorts of changes.
1: Well, because these changes aren't happening until 2019, there's not a very specific set of um, solutions right now. But the big thing I think is that the The board is creating a new policy that will help identify biased judging. Um, so then, the people who are judging in a biased way can have actions take against them, and those and those can be negated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, you know, a a writer is allowed to ask for clarification right. about a about a certain character, for example, or a certain subject matter. And um, if they're not happy with, for the, with that explanation, then they're able to appeal to the larger board. And then if found of wrongdoing, I guess the, uh, the judge can be expelled from the process and all of their scores thrown out. And sure. it could go all the way up to a ban from RWA for life. Um, personally, I'm actually really excited about this because a few years ago, like, a Nazi concentration camp romance made it all the way into two no finals. Way. Yes really? way. Yes.
0: It made it through round. People like it read this and were, and were like It won two rounds.
1: I mean it won two <laughs> categories. Um oh my God. so like have, so that's why wow. people are just kind of out of the blue saying like if you write a romance with an ice agent and a deta- detainee, detainee, yeah. we're all going to like hunt you down because like shit like that happens.
0: One observation I have about this kind of stuff is you know like you kind of categorize it it's sort of adding in these sort of um popular checks and balances right mm-hmm. like it suddenly it kind of returns some of the um the checks to the judges to the people participating you know what I mean like you're allowed to kind of raise a complaint you're allowed to you know the crowd has a little bit more power as opposed to kind of how we've often characterized things in the past whether it's this sort of stuff, or whether it's a um, publishing house making unilateral decisions or anything, like, a lot of the time, some of these issues kind of crop up when it's just, like, one party making choices, and no one else really kind of gets a say, and that's how you kind of end up with people getting, you know, shut out of the, you know, decision process, whether it's editorial, whether it's a contest-based thing like this, and so I wonder if this is going to be, like, more of a trend, you know, like, this idea that um, we're going to let you decide, what is what is good and what is you know like and if something seems off like we're going to open more avenues for people to kind of offer complaints and feedback that could actually end up having instit- changes within the institution you know i don't know like it's there's a certain like crowdsourced morality to it that on the one hand i think really works because the whole point of this is to increase the number of voices who get a say right and to kind of you know have policies and um, contests that reflect the values and attitudes of the actual people participating you know and but on the other hand you know as we're going to kind of talk about here in a minute there's there are situations where you know
1: the voices of the, the vo- crowd the voice of the are cr- harmful. Yeah, the, the
0: baying <laughs> crowd is one that yeah. really needs to be paid attention to and treated. Not that this is this is not like some flip side of that. This is a very good thing that's being you know reviewed. But like there is kind of this trend now in all this stuff to kind of return power. You know, everything's been kind of democratized. You know, or we're working toward that trend where. Um, you know, we're deciding, you know, people are making decisions now based on online feedback. You know, they're retracting things. They're, you know, like if everyone hates, you know, an article in the New York Times or something, people raise hell about it. And then sometimes you get a correction. You know, like it's just, there's a lot more of this call and response mm-hmm. that happens now. And a lot of the time, I think, you know, in instances like this, it's really good because. Um, you know it allows for in court like if someone has been treated unfairly based on certain prejudices there's now an avenue for that person to you know say so and hopefully have the situation rectified and not only that but have the institution theoretically learn from that you know and improve itself which is which is good but like in the case of um, you know this thing we're we're going to do next you know there there's all this possibility for crowds um, for you know movements for people to kind of behave in really bad faith and try to take advantage of that um, that mechanism of like where if you get enough people mad you know online or you get enough people angry
1: you can get James Gunn fired from Guardians of the Galaxy you can get
0: people you know you can really go after people and that kind of gets us into you know the next little phenomenon that I want to talk about That doesn't, it isn't strictly related to book publishing, but it is related definitely to publishing. And it definitely, you can see it, um, you know, there have been kind of similar cases in the book world. And, um, you know, we're talking about uh, Sarah Jong, who, you know, if you're anyone who kind of follows media stuff or is interested in kind of, you know, magazine reporting and things like that, you might know that she um, was a senior writer at The Verge. Um, who was just hired by the New York Times as their new tech writer, right? And what happened? You know, I mean, people at first were, um, you know, excited and all these things because she's a good writer who um, should be. You know, it's kind of a needed, you know, a person of color kind of coming to work for the New York Times, which they sorely need. You sorely, know what I mean? <laughs> like, sorely um, need it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's this is a this was a hire that people were excited about. But what ended up happening is people kind of did what we're talking about here which is they dug up all her old tweets right and they said they kind of built this incredibly bad faith case based on like jokes she had kind of made back in like 2011 even i think some of them were from mm-hmm. like and basically trying to make this argument that sarah was and is like racist against white people was kind of the basic charge which is ridiculous all in, a, in a, we're going to get to why that's ridiculous in a second <laughs> but but the basic idea here the strategy was to get enough people to kind of, you know, pull forth these screenshots, you know, from old things she had said, take them entirely out of context and say, hey, look at all this. This person has no business working at a major publication. It was an effort to get this writer fired. And we've seen we've seen that, um, you know, with other um, with other writers this over the this course of this year where, you know, someone, you know, I feel like it's always the Atlantic or someone who's hiring some horrible man to. Um, but like, and then you find out that they've got some horrifically expressed regressive opinion that gets dredged up, and then suddenly they don't get to write for the Atlantic anymore. Um, but here, it's sort of the flip side of that: is the kind of the the right wing, you know, mob tried to get this person fired based on pulling things out of context. And I just find it. This is my question to you, um, because this is not going to be the last time this sort of things happen. This is not going to be um i mean honestly i think we're kind of at a stage where mm-hmm. anytime anyone that you know sort of this regressive media presence you know anytime they don't like someone who gets hired anywhere there's going to be this backlash and it's always going to be in bad faith and maybe you know the thing that publishers really need to ask themselves as you know people who support writers and you know quote unquote hire writers to produce content through their platform is um do you think publishers are equipped to handle kind of these mass bad faith attacks against writers.
1: Oh, absolutely not, Eric. Yeah. I mean, yeah. look look at our last few weeks. I know <laughs> you yeah. as an agent um have received multiple um multiple inquiries from a uh, bad, like a bad faith public mm. calling for you to drop one of your authors, yeah. you know, and that's happened to me as well. Like,
0: yeah, you know, the time. I mean, this is not a somebody, you know, somebody yeah.
1: went to the owner of our agency and tried to get me fired <laughs> because of something I said, you know what I mean? And it's like, are
0: you, are you, are you still employed by the way? You I still am. Got your job, still?
1: I, I do still have my job because it turns out yeah Um, like just complaining that somebody is outing you for being unethical, um, doesn't actually like help. Like that's not actually like a bad thing. Um, same, same thing as like, you know, satirizing racism by talking about white people. Like it's not actually a thing because racism is predicated on power imbalance and, and privilege and you just like can't functionally be racist towards white people
0: well that was so on that real quick in case people don't know what we're talking about like these these things that sarah had posted were like jokes about like sunburn and things like (laughs) you know or you know what i mean just like sarah (laughs) fair (laughs) how dare you Like (laughs) no but like it was just it was just like really light kind of stuff that was kind of meant to satirize some of the you know racially charged stuff she'd received you know and people kind of took it In that way. So that's, and they claim, well, look, this person clearly hates this certain demographic of people. How can she write for a major liberal newspaper? But I found something really instructive in the New York Times' statement about it all, right? Because Sarah came out and, you know, apologized and said, you know, I shouldn't have said those things. And then the New York Times, Released. Well, she didn't say I shouldn't
1: have said those things. She said, taken out of context. Yeah. yeah. These th- I can see how these things are hurtful, even though they were meant to be, you know, satirical. It's almost and like a, Sorry, I won't you're do mad. this. <laughs> and it, I won't do this in the future, yeah. which, like, honestly, I appreciate so much more than I was wrong to have said this.
0: Well, so that's where that's where the New York Times response comes in. And that's also where I think publishers really need to have their ears perked up because. You know, the Times basically said, you know, we reviewed her social media history, we did all this stuff, we hear your complaint, and we've talked to Sarah, and she understands that um, this sort of conduct isn't necessarily acceptable as a Times employee, and she's not going to do it again. <laughs> and it felt, you know, it, there's a lot of people who read that and heard, they and they hear, like, the Times kind of standing up for her, right, saying, we're not going to fire her, you know, we're going to keep her on, we're going to do these things, but I guess for me... I get a little bit itchy hearing that response because it does sort of...
1: It gives credence it to gives, the complaints. Exactly,
0: exactly. Like, it, it does sort of It tacitly admit, you guys are right. What she said was inappropriate, which to me is way too much of a concession and needs to not... like you know because there there's nothing wrong with what she'd posted in context it's fine and like you're saying like you know th- this entire thing was kind of dredged up by people who didn't actually feel offended by any of these posts they just didn't like that a woman of color got hired by the New York Times you know what to I mean to talk like, about
1: tech it, yeah like,
0: it's it's not and so to even grant them any of that kind of rhetorical you know point to say yeah you guys are right but we're going to just keep her on anyway and she's really sorry and she's not going to do it again is way too much of a thing and i just think like You know, with book stuff, we, you know, you can absolutely see scenarios where, you know, an author writes something, you know, you know, particularly provocative and people get mad about it. And then, you know, here comes the mob. And then eventually, and I'm telling you, this is going to happen all the time moving forward. It's going to happen nearly every book that anyone gets mad about. This is the new technique. Like publishers are going to be asked to issue statements or mm-hmm. editors are, or authors, are, someone is. Yeah. And I'm telling you right now, it has to be better than they won't do it again. It has to be, no, we think that what you're saying is crap. We don't think you mean it. We think it's entirely in bad faith, and we're not sorry for having published it. And that's the sort of, it's the sort of response that, you know, you and I can sit right here, and um, it's easy to kind of puff your chest out and be really brave about it. You know what I mean? Like, it's... It's easy to say, well, yeah, you know, screw them. We're absolutely, you know, everyone, you know, it's easy to kind of envision standing up for that and saying the right thing. But there is a certain amount of pressure that has to be withstood, right? Because There's this an extraordinary is just, amount of pressure. Is, and
1: when somebody goes to your boss or somebody goes to your employer, that pressure then becomes internal. Yeah. Because then... You know, the New York Times is getting the bad rap instead of just this one writer. And so then the New York Times has to decide, you know, about the optics, whether they want to take their, you know, take take their reputation and put it on the line for this individual author or if they want to just go yep okay not dealing with it like we're not going to you know we're not going to put our neck out for this one person. And that's
0: what's so that's what's so pernicious about the let me talk to your manager move that these <laughs> people love. You know what I mean? Like cuz it's never a fight that's picked directly with them. It's like all right, well who yeah has any semblance of like power, right? Like this per- this is a writer, you know, who has an employer. We're going to go to them instead of the writer because we know that the employer might have more ability to chastise them in the way that I an internet troll am hoping for, you know. And it's and then it's like you're exactly right. It, it sows this discord internally where suddenly, you know, whether or not they're going to back her, you know, they have there there's going to be a conversation. There's going to be like, "Well, hey, you know, suddenly they have to answer for this in some regard and it just creates a really I think new and complex like this is something different than you can imagine like in you know years past or eras past where like you know a publisher you know whether it's a newspaper or a book publisher would get you know maybe a bunch of like angry letters or something right there's a pace to it there's a there's you can just like you can disregard those a lot more easily than kind of an ongoing sustained online you know with that kind of publicity to it and i don't know like it's gonna require it's gonna require boldness and um i don't know i guess like to me publishers really need to make sure that they're ready like if they haven't already dealt with this you know they need to be ready to because you can't come be coming up with your policy after this happens like this has to be something you're ready to deal with right now you know one
1: of the things that scares me eric is that when that conversation is changed, when it becomes less about us, the, you know, mm-hmm. the the news site or the agency or the, um you know, or the publisher against just the public, yeah. <laughs> you know, just like yeah. the loud, whiny people in the public and it becomes internal. Um, what that does is it creates an environment where the content becomes like sacrificial i yep. guess is what i'm saying yep. you know like when you have to worry about a a worker being more trouble than they're worth yeah right like what it changes the content that you're willing to put out there um yeah, it exactly. changes it yeah. changes what you're willing to say and it changes it changes the stakes, right? It changes the conversation. Um, you know, as, as we've talked about before, media and publishing especially is not super great at worker-employee relations. <laughs> um,
0: well, they treat people as disposable.
1: Right. And, as- and, and and to be fair, like in a lot of ways, the the, the the industry is set up around that. And so then when you have this, you know, these trolls playing with power dynamics... When you have people going to your boss and threatening the institution that you're working for with a lawsuit rather than, you know, threatening you, the individual writer with libel, like at that point, you know, they're willing to, you know, in a lot of cases just throw you on your ass. And so one of the things that I saw a lot on, you know, on news is comparing the New York Times statement about yeah. Sarah Jong to The Verge's statement
0: which is where she used to work and so they felt Or is com- still or working is still until working, she yeah. yeah until But they she felt leaps. compelled to issue their mm-hmm. own thing yeah. Yeah,
1: but basically they said, you know, in this era of fake news, like journalists are increasingly targeted by people acting in bad faith and the online trolls and harassers want us, The Times and other newsrooms to waste our time by debating their malicious agenda. Um, they take tweets and other statements out of context because they want to disrupt us and harm individual reporters. The strategy is to divide and conquer by forcing newsrooms to vi- disavow their colleagues one at a time. This is not a good faith conversation. It's intimidation. So they're prepped for it. They're ready for it.
0: Well, I think like there's something so crucial in there that the the Times failed to do in their "Well, she's really sorry" statement, which is just to call it what it is. To just say this is. A the whole premise of your complaint is in bad faith and we're simply not going to honor it, Yeah, you know? And that is something I think has to happen or you have to be prepared to do, you know, and as these things get more complex. I don't know. I guess for me, like, if you are a publisher, and especially now as a book publisher, um, and you're preparing to, you know, release any book by any writer who has some ability to make, you know, the extreme online far right, uncomfortable. You should be prepared for this. Like this part of your publishing strategy is going to have to be. And when the mob comes, this is what we're going to do because it has to be. Just like the reason this keeps happening is because it it works. Like this is not a unsuccessful tactic. You know this is something that um, people have been able to you know make you know been able to use to great success. And so these these troll campaigns are going to pop up again and again until institutions decide that they're not going to be pressured by them and i don't know like it's like it's time to have you know your editor's room or your um you know your editorial board whoever it is your publicist whoever needs to be prepared in-house um like it's time to have a plan for this because otherwise um you're going to get caught off guard and you're going to say something careless and you're going to release something that you know seeds ground to people who have no business taking any so sort of as a means of you know of transition and feeling like today is sort of the appropriate day to talk about it there has been a piece um, by Sarah Jong you know in the verge that you and I Laura have been we've kind of had it in our docket to talk about for a little while it's sort of been something that i think we've been Chewing over, you know, for some time, we've sort of been, you know, of course, over the flurry of the last few weeks, we've sort of had to like set it aside for a minute, and so which is
1: what happens <laughs> when the when the trolls try to get your job from you.
0: Yeah. Um, congrats on having a job, by the way. Thank you. Another week of employment for Laura Louis. Thank Zatz. you. Good it's for you.
1: you know, it was a little touch and go there for a minute. <laughs> what with the uh, what with the facetious lawsuit, and you know the. The the phone calls from dad, but, yeah, but I think we've made it.
0: We're real we're real hard to kill is the thing. <laughs> like a horrible little roach.
1: So this is the best part about print run, is that nobody is our boss.
0: Yeah, that is the best part. So about we print
1: can run. just, you know, um, like, yeah, anyway.
0: <laughs> um but anyway, this art, this is it's kind of a change of pace, but um the article is called Bad Romance. It's by Sarah Jong and it basically is this examination and we'll link out in the episode description and stuff, but um, it's this piece about this group of romance writers, you know, working on the self-publishing Kindle platform who are really in effect kind of gaming this algorithm in a way that definitely has the hair on my arms kind of standing on end as sort of a this could change what books are. Yeah. Sort so of
1: specifically, thing. we're talking about Kindle Unlimited <clears throat> um which is if you know, you're not super familiar with it, it's kind of like the land of short stories and novellas for a certain dollar amount a month. Readers can get, you know, kind of as many books as they want on Kindle unlimited and they essentially pay authors per page read. Mm -hmm. So there's one big pot and for the number of pages that somebody reads of your book, you get paid. Um, And so, of course, you know, this is this is a change from the original format, which was, you know, somebody downloads your book and you get paid a flat fee.
0: So, but just to kind of step before we kind of dig into all the implications there, just so it's totally clear what we're dealing with, like we've got this system that incentivize, you know, an or a pay structure for authors, you know, publishing on this platform that is directly tied to.
1: Edging out the competition.
0: To to edging out the competition and is directly tied to the structure of your work, right? Like, we went from a structure that was paying per book. Like, you know, you Mm -hmm. get paid a certain number of times people download a book of yours to now a different model, which is paying per page. And so you can already... You can already see what's going to happen.
1: So the right. reason Amazon switched <laughs> like, from the per book model to yeah. the per page model is because originally people, you know, would put up one chapter in one book. And so people would have to download, you know, 42 chapters to get an entire book.
0: Yeah, because why not? Because why not? Because like
1: that's genius, right? Because
0: you should create if you're that's how you're being paid. You should create a situation in which you are getting paid the most, which means instead of a 42 chapter book, you're releasing 42 one chapter books, you know, like it's just.
1: And so Amazon found that out. And said, "I don't like this." And uh-huh. because Amazon is allergic to actually like using or valuing human beings, <laughs> um, they. <laughs> I'm feeling a little like like you know punchy today. Um, well, gra-
0: you know your grapes are overripe. My I mean- grapes
1: are <laughs> they're they're becoming ripe. Eric, yeah. don't oh, don't yeah. over exaggerate. Pardon me. Um, I, w- I would never. <laughs> so they switched it uh, and they created an algorithm then that allowed you know to be paid paid per page number the idea Mm -hmm. is of course is that the more you write and the more people read of your work the more you get paid Mm -hmm. well then people invented ebook stuffing on its very like least malicious level what that is is just like making the font really freaking big and like putting a lot of like gaps in between paragraphs so that you have a lot of pages
0: remember how when you were like writing papers in high school and it was like you got to write an eight-page paper, and you like only had six pages, and so you just like got in there and started messing with the margins, Do you and know like what my secret and was? Size and what?
1: All of the periods yes, make yes, them fourteen a... point instead of twelve. <laughs> that
0: was my trick too. <laughs> um, but that's basically what we have here: is that like is. this model that says, okay, we got to change the structure of my book so that it gets longer. But like it obviously, you know, ebook stuffing, as we're talking about, gets. To, I mean it's it they're extremes. Much, yeah. yeah. So
1: the extreme is so like Kindle allows for three thousand pages in an ebook, <laughs> right? Um but ebooks also, especially the EPUB model, yeah. uh, generate a generate a table of contents right at the beginning. And mm-hmm. so you can it links through. It's basically a hyperlink yeah. that links through. Yeah. And so what a lot of these people have done is they have Stuffed a bunch of like broken HTML code or just like other stories or like other stuff. Yep. Yep. And they've just stuffed it right in the middle of the ebook. And then what they do is they link you to the back Past of it. the book because Amazon hasn't quite figured out. To that, like not paging through every single page, yeah, is not the same thing as reading every single page. Well, so that's what
0: happens, right? Is you create, you've basically created a link where to get to the chapter you're looking for, the you know your computer scrolls automatically through thousands of pages, correct? Thus, paying the author um, for thousands of pages, quote unquote, read, even right? though
1: nobody's reading it. Um, and so a lot of the times, what happens? is if they are real content writers will write a little thing and then they'll have a sequel that they'll attach into sort of like a box set or a compilation and then at the very end they'll put up a separate listing where it's and then it's got a short story or like a happily ever after in there and so people will download it and then click on it and get to the very end to get that new content of the con you know that they've already had and so basically this is a whole big mess yeah Um, And a lot of people are talking about it. I mean, this is really like, you know, anybody can use Kindle Unlimited as a, you know, as an author, but really it's become, um, it's become the, the domain of romance writers specifically just because of the reading habits of, of their audience. And there's, um, there's a lot of mess in there. So like, remember Felina Hopkins? Who could forget? Um, Friend of the show, (laughs) Felina. She is not a friend of the show, Eric Hain. As
0: an idea, she's a friend of the show.
1: Yes, her the, her the concept of Felina Hawkins for the pure laugh for me, yeah, great joy. Yeah. Um, and her and her sick YouTube videos is a friend <laughs> is the friend of the podcast. Um, <laughs> so she was part of kind of this group of Kindle Unlimited romance authors where they're self published and they're you know doing what they can to game the system and when felina went off the rails it was because a group of these writers decided that you know they like decide every month what the theme is going to be so that they can all you know kind of communicate this this uh this this air of trendiness and like exclusivity
0: okay so that the way you phrase that makes it sound like a writing club deciding what their theme is for the month. This Correct. is this is something yeah. much which which is what it is in a lot of ways. But to, this is something much more with a much more financial stakes than that. I mean, these are people deciding like how you know. I mean, it's sort of this like search engine optimization gaming, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're going to decide these are these are the topics, these are the tags that we're going to get trending this month, on, so we can, can all jump off so of so each other's can, success exactly. And so you get this situation where. I mean, it's not – I mean, it is collusion. I'm not sure that it carries the same sort of negative connotation that you have. But, like, it's sort of this group effort to, um, you know, game what people are looking at through these kind of search mechanisms on Kindle Unlimited so that their books can, can kind of, like, be coordinated within, you know, by topic and stuff. And I don't know. it, And then it kind of trickles down into yeah. this um, – you know, like I don't know, or somebody got, gets really <clears throat>
1: mad when you know f- when they pick your topic, which is cocky, and then you get really mad, and then you like, you know, start threatening to sue people, right? Um, which is what happened with Felina Hopkins.
0: <laughs> and it's just like, and then I mean, with it comes like this idea of, um, you know, trying to game bestseller lists, right? Because if you can kind of manipulate who sees what, and like again, this is self-publishing, so. You know, all this kind of power, you know, exists on this, you know, supposedly neutral platform. It kind of lies entirely with the creators to kind of shape this however they want, and you kind you can kind of end up at this situation where. Um, you sort of have this, this people, this like small group of people in power kind of manipulating what even gets seen. And like here you've got, you know, this mention of, you know, they're like selling mailing lists to each other and stuff in and terms selling of selling novellas like, and they
1: have, you know, people who are their assistants who run all of their SEO for them and do it with a bunch of other authors.
0: It's like much more of a, especially when you consider the fact that these books are, you know, stuffed with a bunch of like non-book things in them you sort of get the idea that this is something, like something has changed here, you know? This is no longer, like, I mean, this is going to sound kind of dramatic and fainting couchy, but, like...
1: <laughs> Please, be dramatic, Eric. <laughs> I've never seen you be dramatic.
0: This is, like, this is changing what it means to write a book, I think. Or, to, or rather, it's changing what a book can be considered to be, you know? It's because it's now, it's this... Or, or maybe it's just changing publishing, but in, in this particular model, obviously it's different. But I guess I just see this and I think, man, if especially as Amazon increases its reach and it, you know, becomes more and more the way in, through which things are done and it has more and more power to kind of shape the landscape of how readers find books, you know, if this is the future, then, you know, that's going to that's going to change the art. You know, mm-hmm. that's going to change the writing. Like, I mean, this article kind of aptly, you know, points out, you know, the old classic example, right? Like, Charles Dickens's books were, you know, were so long because he was paid by the word, you know? But, like, and who
1: reads Bleak House outside of a college English class? You know what I mean? <laughs>
0: yeah. But, and it still
1: yeah, takes a month and a half.
0: But you get what I'm, I'm saying. I'm very is that salty about see... having
1: to read Bleak House. I'm sorry, guys.
0: <laughs> but you can see the point, though, is that, like... If you create, if you change the financial structure for writers t- in a manner that is directly tied to the structure of the piece itself, you know, because like, oftentimes, like if you give an advance for a like a, a book advance, how often, Laura, is it ever tied to how long the book is? Never. It's never, you know, <laughs> like in traditional publishing, like, you know, the the money considerations very rarely have to do with. Um, well, this book is, you know, 100K versus 60K. Like, or it'll it's a, take
1: this long to travel exactly. and like, get it's the about, research.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. like about what, how many, they, you know, it's about sales and stuff. You know, it has less to do with, well, your book has this many words in it and we're interested in paying you based on some sort of correlation to that. But this is different. And so what could end up happening, and this, again, is not really any fault of, like, fun. you know, I'm reading this and I'm supposed to come away a little bit mad at these writers, right? Because they're trying to game this algorithm, they're trying to game this system. And yeah, and a lot, you know, a lot of the internal stuff we kind of see in here, it's sleazy and bad and in, you know, in bad faith in a lot of ways. But like on the other hand, I don't know. Like what are they supposed to do? What is They didn't su-
1: create this ecosystem. What
0: are you supposed to if you're trying to make a career as a writer and you've been told, Okay, this is how you make the money, why Why not try to do some? Why not try to do that as efficiently as possible? You know, why is
1: it your fault for just operating in this ecosystem? And this
0: was this was like this is going to sound somewhat unrelated, but back in the day when we did that story about um, handbook for mortals, um, and you know that lady trying to like game that New York Times bestseller list, Laney
1: Sarum, also a friend of the podcast, (laughs) in theory, yeah, Yeah, in theory,
0: we've got a lot of conceptual friends. Um, (laughs) It's been true all my life. (laughs) <laughs> but um, no, it's, uh, but it's this idea, you know, I mean, people got really mad, justifiably so, that she kind of did these things that, uh, you know, she kind of put together this scheme that sort of disingenuously placed her at the top of the New York Times bestseller list in a way that people kind of looked at and said it was cheating. And it was cheating by every kind of unwritten rule of the publishing game, you know. But I also kind of look at that and I remember thinking, you know, if you're going to set up a structure, you know, that has to do with quantity in some way, and then and that is what a bestseller list is, like, eventually, someone is going to try to manipulate that, especially if it's based on this loophole of, like, pre-sales all, you know, technically existing in one week, you know what I mean? Like, the point is that if you create a system that's kind of based on these ways, people are going to try to exploit it, because it makes sense to do that. Like, it's... It's smart, like, on an objective level, it's smart to try to, you know, get the most out of, you know, the Kindle Unlimited if you're a writer. Like, you should want to do that. Now, the reason people get mad is because it digs at this idea of what what we believe a book should be. You know, we don't think of a book as a marketing object that exists according to whatever the trend is for the month that is just going to be sort of algorithmically read through, you know, 3,000 pages at a time by someone who isn't even looking, like, that's not what we want a book to be. And I think, like, it sort of gets at that idea, you know, um, people talk about Amazon a lot. And they say, well, you know, we've talked about on the show a lot, like, people say, well, if Amazon is good for writers, if more writers are getting paid, if more, you know, people are succeeding, you know, because of this, shouldn't we think that it's good? And When framed that way, the answer is yes. But it also comes with this caveat that that's going to change what a book is. It's going to change how art is produced. It's going to change all this stuff. And I don't know. To me, it's worthy of examination. And I guess it. I don't want to say that it worries me. Like I'm some kind of, you know.
1: I mean, even like beyond the gaming and beyond the definition of what a book is, like just by feature of how Kindle Unlimited works. Yeah. Um, there's a steep d- drop-off in, in downloads after 30 yep. days, after yep. something is on Kindle, right? Um, what a
0: short shelf life that is, too. That's way shorter even than traditional, which is short. So short. Yeah.
1: short. Um, and so, like, that, at the very least, like, if you're not upset about anything else, like, you should be upset about just the the death of revisions and, like, editing, right? Because yeah. 30 days means that you know anybody can live with anything for 30 days right you don't you don't have time to revise you don't have to do anything and so like what it is is it's not just changing what books are it's changing what writing is because i think you can argue that you know 50 percent of writing is actually rewriting and editing and, and 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 reworking um more if you take it you know Time-wise, mm-hmm. like you take way more time revising than you take writing, um, and so, like you, dear listener, if you are a writer, like that should that should concern you. You should you should be you should be worried about that.
0: It feels like a situation right now where the incentives, you know, the trending of how the incentives are set up for people doing the producing are now misaligned with. Our idea of what that product should be, yeah, you know, and that's going to lend. I don't know. It's hard for me. It's hard to ever say that the the incentives are going to win out. You know, and in a lot of ways they should, because all we'd ever do on the show is talk about how hard it is to make it as a writer, and so like if there's an avenue for that, like people are probably just going to do that, and I think that it's people whose job it is to really kind of care about this stuff and say, okay, well, how can we re incentivize? you know, actual, I don't want to, I guess I was going to say actual writing, which is unfair. Yeah. Like I, but you know what I mean? Like just sort of like a, a more traditional sounding, like, you know, more traditionally written a book that's kind of written with all of our attached ideas of kind of art and craft as opposed to, you know, something that is meant to be. You know simply gamed through its table of contents you know
1: taking a um phrase from the the world of food which i'm clearly getting into what with my i hate my grapes cookbook Uh um i don't hate them yet i just will hate them in about three weeks um slow food right like this is slow writing or slow books (laughs) that you know that slow measured you know um Intentional process of writing a project rather than just, you know, t- banging it out and throwing it up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just one of those things where um, people who really care about this stuff on a level beyond metrics need to pay attention here. And I, I don't know what the solution is because you're, Have up,
1: Amazon you're actually up against people.
0: Like the algorithm yeah. is always going to win, you know? And it's just a matter of can we. I don't know. Is there a way to kind of create an alternative to that? Is there a way to kind of carve out a niche within that algorithm, which I'm deeply pessimistic about? Well, the, the answer is but, to
1: hire people yeah. to double check the algorithm. Yeah,
0: but why? Why do that? Like, there's <laughs> no, it's the same. Like, it's.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's a, a girl can dream, Eric. A girl like, can dream.
0: I mean, it's sort of a casual comparison, but like, you know, think about. Other giant tech platforms that have had like content issues, you know, like they're not so good at eventually like making human judgment calls on what is good and what isn't. You know, I think of like most social media sites like this is not these are not tasks that are typically successfully outsourced to people. You know, like it's it's just a weird.
1: If Alex Jones can get kicked off of YouTube. (laughs) Yeah. Amazon can maybe at some point at some time in the future. Yeah. Fix their algorithm. We are
0: obviously, obviously not calling these, you know, romance writers anything similar to that. But like you get you can kind of see how some of this stuff, you know, at least on a structural level, can relate. But um
1: So let's let's move into the publishing tip this week, which is one that I'm really excited about. I'm, you know, headed to a conference next week, so I'm in conference mode. mm -hmm. Um and I've been thinking a lot about in person pitches. A lot of local writers' conferences and national writers' conferences give you the opportunity to pitch an agent in person. Um, I will say that a lot of people go into these meetings with the wrong goals in mind. I think, you know, like these these pitches cost money, right? And you're going in and you have 10 minutes one-on-one with an agent. And, you know, just by virtue of, you know, human beings coming together into the same physical space, this is not something that, you know, like you can't, I don't think you should go in and cross your fingers and hope that you're going to meet the one in in these in-person conference settings. I mean, it'd be great if you have, but yeah. I've been going to conferences for five years and I've never signed anyone from them. And that's I go to like a lot of conferences. Yeah. And yeah. that's not because the people I meet, you know, are bad writers it's by any stretch t- it's of the amount. It's just mad- a
0: small sample size of an, in the query game, yeah. which often requires a lot. Yeah. yeah, when
1: I have five queries an hour and I'm doing this for eight hours a day, that's a lot of, that's a lot of pitches But that's still, you know, that's that's not that many people in the grand scheme of things. And so considering I sign, you know, two people a year, it's just the math doesn't quite work out. But what you should do when you go in is you should say to yourself, I have 10 minutes with this person who is here to help me. This person got on a plane at God knows what what time made it to the dumb airport, you know, and, and came here for me, and they want to help me.
0: And has been financially incentivized to sit there and talk to you. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So you have 10 minutes to use this as a practice round with mm-hmm. somebody who will, you know, always give you the, you know, like, industry standard advice. Yeah. Um. Or, they, like, you know, the people who are invited to conferences should be giving that. But, you know, you can... You have 10 minutes to practice with them. You have 10 minutes to ask them specific questions. You have 10 minutes to basically use their time in whatever way is gonna be most helpful to you. I love it when people sit down and say, I'm just gonna like blow through this and then I'm gonna ask you some questions you know, in w- with regards to the pitch. Mm-hmm. Great, I also love it when people sit down and they're like, I'm still working on this, I wanna workshop it with you. Or when people sit down and say, You know, I just want to ask you some questions about the market. Like all of these things are good and welcome and fine. And like, honestly, I leave those 10 minutes feeling so much more helpful and optimistic than somebody who sits down and is, you know, banking 100 percent of their goals and, you know, and hopes and dreams on me signing them. Yep. Because like if that happens, wonderful. It's great and exciting. And it's, you know, I'll be super happy and I'm sure someday it will happen. But I just I want to give you help in whatever way that you need. And it shouldn't be about, you know, my personal, you know, preferences or tics. I'm able to help you with any type of book, no matter what.
0: I would just say, um, obviously, I think all of that is really great advice. I would also just say, like, you know, the submission process is one that can be painful in a lot of ways and it can feel You know overwhelming with rejections and stuff like that but if there is ever a time to like really kind of focus on like having thick skin and hearing what's being said even at maybe after you've been told no in-person pitches are that time oh yeah you know what i mean like if someone if you've got 10 minutes with someone and in minute three they say no this isn't for me like don't shut down because the most useful part of that conversation and of that whole conference experience is coming over the next five minutes you know what i mean like it's that's when it's time to you know you can get you know get really mad about that person you know <laughs> three hours later over drinks you know what I mean but like in those moments like in that like that there's really often really useful stuff and I'm, I'm with you like when I go to conferences the best conversations I end up having about pitches with people are after we've kind of gotten past this well it might not be for me but hey here's how we can kind of strategize and maybe make this a little yeah. stronger for someone who it is for and I don't know. I think that's really valuable. To piggyback
1: so. off of that, you know, some of you are listening and they're like, well, why would somebody say no in minute three? Well, the answer is, is you know, if you're essentially like giving me what would essentially be your query letter, it shouldn't take 10 minutes to do. Like a lot of people yeah. will sit down and say, yeah. I have 10 minutes to convince you that I'm brilliant, <laughs> which yeah. like I don't need 10 minutes. You know, usually yeah. I know within the first 30 seconds yeah. whether or not I want the book. But in that, you know, in that other nine and a half minutes, I want to help you make it so that somebody else will really love your book, even if I'm going to say no. Mm-hmm. So with that, um, you know, just just shift your mindset a little bit and have fun at your conferences. This will also um, this advice also has to do is is applicable to online pitch contests or events like uh, the Manuscript Academy run by Jessica Sinsheimer so highly recommended and once again thank you so much for joining us for Print Run we so love having you remember to it's the beginning of the month subscribe to Patreon if you want to get that special content and send us your queries your first pages and most importantly your synopses for our special episodes coming to you this month